It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Don't you hate when you get $5 million and somebody comes along and says, ah, sorry, you got to give it back. It's so annoying. Well, that is what has happened to Andrew Cuomo, the former governor of New York, as you may recall. Uh, back when he was popular, back when he was governor, I should add, uh, he wrote a book on you know lessons from American crisis, actually was the title, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. Well, now a uh, state ethics commission in New York has ordered the former governor to give back the $5.1 million in profits that he made from his book deal uh, after concluding that Cuomo used state resources and staff members to write, publish, and promote the book. Uh, he has disputed that. That order has gone out. I think he gave some of the money away, which might be a problem now if he's got to give back five mil, but uh, not exactly uh, good news. Uh, you know, latest bit of bad news, I guess you would say, for the Cuomo family. You know, I have a whole column today about COVID-19, and the, the newest thing on it here comes from the CDC uh, in a briefing yesterday, which is the CDC now predicts that the Omicron variant is spreading so rapidly here in the U.S. of A that it could peak in a, this is a massive wave of infections as soon as January, which is, you know, less than half a month away. Um, the presence of Omicron in the U.S. jumped sevenfold in a single week could put pressure on the healthcare system and so forth. I mean, look, the good news about Omicron is that it appears to be relatively mild. I've even seen it compared to the flu. We don't fully know the impact yet, uh, but it seems to be incredibly transmissible. And I bring this up because on yesterday's podcast, I talked about this, and I've got this column today, two different pieces in the Atlantic basically trying to blow off the pandemic. One, by a guy in rural Michigan saying, you know, all the people where I live, you know, we don't talk about it. We just go about our lives. We don't do all this masking and other stuff. And then the second piece was by a member of Gen Z. Uh, and this Generation Z guy says, you know what, we don't follow the news, or many of us don't follow the news about COVID. We're busy with final exams and trying to get dates and socializing and trying to go on vacation. So, you know, what I concluded was, you know, people are so sick and tired going on two years now of the masks and the mandates and even the vaccines, though I wish the 40% of the population that is unvaccinated would go out and get the vaccine. But they've just made a decision, and these are personal decisions about how much risk you want in your lives. So here comes the CDC with the Omicron. And now when the numbers start to jump, I don't know, will that scare some people and maybe more people who haven't gotten the shots will decide to do so. We shall see. You know, Elon Musk on the cover of Time, person of the year. And as I mentioned, the Time cover story, you know, includes a lot of criticism. of it. Well, new things have happened uh, since he got that coveted designation. Uh, one is uh, six more women have uh, filed or joined a sexual harassment suit against Tesla. And then there is this thing, a former SpaceX engineer uh, publishing yesterday on a site called Lioness, um, that she received little or no support when she brought claims of sexism and sexual harassments to her bosses and to uh, HR. Um, let's see now. At SpaceX. She's a former SpaceX engineer. Each and every man who harassed me, writes Ashley Kozak, 
was tolerated despite the company's so-called no tolerance and no a-hole policy, she writes. I didn't know companies could have a no a-hole policy. I'd like to see exactly how that reads. Uh, but I don't want to make a light of this because it's serious stuff. Uh, she says that the company is in a state of disrepair and dysfunction, that Musk's own behavior is similar to that of a sadistic and abusive man. I mean, this is pretty tough uh, rhetoric. Anyway, this woman describes, um, Ashley Kozak, how um, she tried to blow the whistle on what happened when she joined the company in 2017. Um, she was an intern at the time. A fellow intern approached her and, quote, grabbed my butt while I was washing my dishes. Uh, she reported the incident to two people. Nothing happened. Uh, then there were countless men, she says, who made sexual advances, excuse me, advances toward her. her. A male coworker ran his hand over my shirt from my lower waist to my chest. Uh, she met with HR. Nothing happened. Uh, this man remained part of the team I reported to. Uh, one man, this is another guy, uh, called her at 4 a.m. Another arrived at her house and insisted on touching me even when I repeatedly requested we stay professional. And the, the kicker to this is uh, when she, you know, pushed her case with SR, excuse me, with HR, um, she was given a form to fill out, and she discovered it was actually a Microsoft form that allows the admins to see the submitter's identity, in other words, rather than remaining confidential. So maybe, I, would this have come out anyway? Maybe. But perhaps being the time person of the year is just bringing out more of Musk's uh, detractors and people who have had bad experiences at his companies uh, to the surface. All right, let me get down to business here with story number one. And what remains story number one is the whole January 6th committee, uh, the full House, which I'll get to in a few moments, voting to hold Mark Meadows, former White House chief of staff, in criminal contempt. That means it will be kicked over to the Justice Department. Uh, but what's getting, you know, an awful lot of attention, especially on the rival cable news channels, are the texts that were sent by three Fox News hosts to Meadows on January 6th, urging Trump, pleading with him to urge Trump to get him to stop the violence in the Capitol and saying things like, you know, this uh, is destroying his legacy. It's hurting all of us. He's destroying his legacy. That's what Laura Ingram wrote. And I want to um, describe for you, because there's not a lot of attention being given to their defense, by what they had to say on Fox last night. Now, they can defend themselves, uh, just as an aside. Every place that I've worked, I haven't agreed with everything that was said and done by everybody who worked there. The same is true here at Fox News. But when you just look at what they did on January 6th, they did what you would want of them to do. They reached out to the top person at the White House as did Donald Trump Jr., by the way, to try to get the then president to stop the violence, to take some action. The criticism comes with what they said on the air later and why they remain Trump defenders, because, you know, their critics won't be satisfied until they go on the air and denounce Trump and say he should be in jail. Uh, again, I want to stick here, too, because you can make up your own minds to what they have had to say. So Laura Ingram on her show responded to the reading of these texts by Liz Cheney, which obviously was a move uh, engineered by the Democrats who have a Republican, an anti-Trump Republican to be sure, read these texts uh, at a hearing that was televised by the other cable news channels. Uh, and she, met, she read the one from Laura, which I mentioned. And Laura is now saying that Cheney's actions has sent the left-wing media hacks into spin and defame mode. She says, now, of course, the regime media was somehow trying to twist this message to try to tar me as a liar 
hypocrite who privately sounded the alarm on January 6th, but publicly downplayed it. She uh, particularly singled out a Washington Post reporter for having grossly mischaracterized what I said in an attempt to smear uh, her as some January 6th denier, but he wasn't alone. More from Laura. Uh, I, when she mentioned, well, there may have been some Antifa there, I was referring to other accounts that were reported that day, which we later clarified as not substantiated. Okay, she goes on. Have they bothered to actually watch what I said on the night of January 6th or read any of my public tweets from the afternoon of January 6th, says Laura Ingram? Well, then, they couldn't have denied the truth. And she played a clip of herself on January 6th where she said uh, what she said. And then she says, the point remains, if you were a Trump supporter hoping to display your support of the president, well, today's antics at the Capitol did just the opposite. Uh, Those who breached the Capitol Hill security today, whoever they were, they were criminals. Um, I've been to literally dozens of Trump events, and the criminal actions we saw today do not represent the movement. Now, she says in real time, um, does that sound like I was downplaying it to you? And in these tweets, Laura Ingram said that this was hurting President Trump's legacy. She said this in the afternoon while the violence was going on. So she just said the same thing on Twitter as she said in a private text or a series of texts to Mark Meadows. Both publicly and privately, says Loringham, I said what I believe, that the breach at the Capitol on January 6th was a terrible thing. Crimes were committed. Some people were unfairly hounded and persecuted and prosecuted, but it was not an insurrection. To say anything different is beyond dishonest and ignores the facts of that day. All right. Now, Sean Hannity addressing this on his show last night. Um, he turns to, rhetorically speaking, to Liz Cheney. He says, now, last night, in a weak attempt to smear yours truly, and presumably, I guess, President Trump, Congresswoman Cheney presented one of my text messages from January 6th to Mark Meadows. Surprise, surprise, surprise. I said to Mark Meadows the exact same thing I was saying live on the radio at that time and on TV that night on January 6th and well beyond January 6th. And by the way, where is the outrage in the media over my private text messages being released again publicly? Do we believe in privacy in this country? Apparently not. Now, just uh, as background, I mean, these were texts that were voluntarily or under pressure, to be sure, turned over by Meadows to the House January 6th committee because he deemed them to be um, non-confidential, not the kind that would be protected by executive privilege. And he says, look, I'm an honest and straightforward person. I say the same thing in private that I say to all of you. And then he turns to Liz Cheney. He says, Liz Cheney knows this. She doesn't seem to care. She's interested in one thing and one thing only, smearing Trump and purging him from the party. And then he went on to talk about um, efforts to orchestrate a pardon, which Trump eventually provided in 2018, to Scooter Libby. He had been the chief of staff for Vice President Dick Cheney, Liz's dad. Uh, And Hannity says, well, let's see the communications between the Cheneys and Trump. Liz, let's release your phone records and texts and your family discussing Donald Trump, considering you're so free to release everybody else's. Now, in fairness, she's the vice chairman of the committee. Uh, She, I guess the committee as a whole, dominated by Democrats, made the decision to release. They just had Liz Cheney read it because, as I noted earlier, having it be read by a Republican woman, not just that, but the daughter of the former vice president of the United States, was uh, thought to be 
uh, a good move politically. Uh, you're a rock star now to the media mob, Hannity said uh, to Liz Cheney. Now, I just take the time to do this because, as in any case, there are multiple sides to any story. And some of Fox's rivals, which, you know, which bass Fox News day after day after day. And I'm not saying that none of this is fair game. Um, but they, all they are doing is saying these people are liars and hypocrites. And since this is the first time they've addressed it, I wanted to share it with you. And you can decide what you think about it. Moving on to number two, but staying with this general topic. I want to read a piece in National Review because it's a conservative magazine. Now, it's certainly a conservative magazine that has broken with Donald Trump many times, although during his presidency, National Review, which Trump, you know, has dismissed and denounced many times, um, supported Trump on a lot of policies, conservative judges, um, tax cuts, regulatory reform. So it is not a place that is automatically hostile to the former president, but certainly since he began making the claims, the unproven claims of a stolen election, and since um, the violence of January 6th, National Review has been pretty tough. Donald Trump's claims of massive election fraud, only in the states he lost, by the way, were treated by people around him as a kind of naughty habit that had to be tolerated or indulged. When the people who treated these claims very seriously started acting like they were true, when they tried to stop the steal by interrupting the ceremony in which Congress, this was, of course, January 6th, certifies the results of the presidential election, then it had, quote, gone too far and gotten out of hand. That is actually a quote from a text from Donald Trump Jr. to Mark Meadows saying you got to get the president to do something. Uh, it's gone too far and gotten out of hand. Hearing the text read aloud at this late date, says National Review, uh, does provide a sense of clarity. Many of Trump's lies before this seemed to have little cost at all. Many of them had been brazened out until they produced a kind of success. The lies that Trump told to that day, that day to the crowd, had produced this specific televised disaster. Unfortunately, it was a predicted disaster, but almost everyone knew it was wrong while it was happening. In the months after January 6th, again, according to National Review, the politically correct move for Trump's cable news apologists has been to ignore the fact that the people who set about, quote, investigating the supposed vote fraud had turned up nothing of consequence or merit. And by the way, if I could just interject here, uh, that has been reported repeatedly by the Fox News news division. Um, people at Fox News, remember it's, it's the network, was the first network to call Arizona for Joe Biden, very controversial at the time, obviously, uh, have reported on all the claims, and I'm leaving the opinion people aside, people of various views, and never, to my knowledge, uh, you know, when, when the Arizona audit that Trump demanded, when other states have looked into it, the DOG investigation by, DOJ investigation by Bill Barr, and all of that, it's all been reported on Fox News, as well as, you know, Times, Washington Post, CBS, NBC, MSNBC, CNN, and so forth. Uh, going back to this article, turned up nothing of consequence. Uh, there's also been an obsessive focus, says the uh, magazine, on the potential involvement of the FBI or other intel agencies in the riots. Uh, this is worth inquiring about, uh, National Review says, especially after the FBI's role in trying to investigate or instigate, National Review says, a kidnapping plot against Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. But the riot at the Capitol happened because President Donald Trump simply lied and lied and lied. Some of you may disagree with that. 
I try to provide all points of view on the air in what I write and here on the podcast. Uh, and as I say, I single that out because it was, is in National Review. All right, getting back to Mark Meadows, it was the House last night, and then, you know, a lot of commentary was going on while the House was voting, holding Mark Meadows, a former member of that body, in criminal contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena. The vote was 222 to 208. Uh, Democrats all voted yes. Two Republicans, who also happened to be members of the committee, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, joining in voting yes. Now this goes to DOJ. Meadows potentially faces one year in prison a fine of up to $100,000, just as Steve Bannon does after having been indicted with under similar circumstances by the Justice Department. Uh, by the way, President Biden was asked about this uh, by reporters today. And he said, he suggested, I should add, that Congress had done the right thing. Here's the quote. Just what I've seen, I have not spoken to anyone, Biden said. It seems to me he is worthy of being held in contempt. That's all that President Biden had to say about it. Now, during the um, committee hearings, naturally, there's a lot of rhetoric. Uh, the Democratic chairman, Benny Thompson, saying rhetorically to Meadows, if you're making excuses to avoid cooperating with our investigation, you're making excuses to hide the truth from the American people about what happened on January 6th. You're making excuses as part of of a cover-up. Meadows, of course, who had been cooperating then decided not to fully cooperate, uh, claims executive privilege, claims that this is unfair, claims that he wanted to cooperate, um, and the committee's rejected that, the House has rejected that, and we'll see what happens at the Department of Justice. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. This is always interesting to me, um, the question of hypocrisy in, in politics. There is so much of it. And, you know, both parties play the game. So when you had the President Biden pushing the big infrastructure bill, as well as the COVID relief bill, trillions of dollars, um, you know, he got very, except on the infrastructure bill, where he did get, I think it was 17 or 19, I'm sorry, I don't remember, Republican votes. Um, a lot of Republicans voted against it, and a lot of Republican governors opposed it. But now that the money is actually being pushed out to the states and the states get to decide, uh, you know, within certain broad guidelines how to spend the money, here's the lead of a New York Times story. Uh, when Governor Christy Nome of South Dakota gave her budget speech this month, she blamed President Biden's economic policies for rising prices and decried the giant handout of federal stimulus funds. Um, but turns out that she was happy to take the money, $1.9 trillion pandemic relief. That was the total bill. She was happy to take South Dakota's share. She says, look, here's how I think you should spend the money. Her state gets nearly a billion bucks. You should invest in local water projects, make housing more affordable, build new daycare centers. And for those who question her decision to take the money on behalf of the state, she said, well, look, if I turn it down, then this pandemic relief money is just going to go to other states. It would be spent somewhere other than South Dakota. Christy Nome says the debt would still be incurred by the country. Our people would still suffer the consequences of that spending. You know, I think that's a reasonable thing to say, because if you transpose it to, let's say, tax cuts, and let's say you were a Democrat who voted against tax cuts because you didn't want to uh, widen the Democrat uh, the deficit, excuse me, or felt that the um, country can't afford tax cuts, okay, do you then personally not accept the tax cut? 
you give the extra money back to the Treasury? Look, once it's passed and it's law, I, I think, you know, look, you made your argument. You lost. I don't blame the Republican governor of South Dakota for saying, look, uh, why, since the money was appropriate anyway and it's going to be spent somewhere, why shouldn't it be spent in my state? Where I do think it sort of slides across that line into hypocrisy is when a politician, let's say in this case a Republican politician, tries to take credit for the money, you know, announcing this, I have brought this to the great state of whatever, because that's, you know, if it was up to you, that money would not be coming. Uh, so the New York Times goes on to say Republican leaders across the country have been engaged in an awkward dance over the past few months as they accept and often champion money from the, there was this separate uh, line item, $350 billion bucks for state and local aid in that original Biden COVID stimulus bill, which passed Congress without a single Republican vote, unlike the infrastructure uh, compromise. Uh, so it's, it has some other examples. For example, Montana Governor Greg Gianforte, I urge President Biden and Democrats in D.C. to turn off the spigot of out-of-control spending and get inflation under control. Well, his state got $906 million in stimulus money, which is being used to invest in nursing homes and return-to-work bonuses. Ron DeSantis in Florida complained last week that the federal formula for allocating money to the states based on their jobless rate had penalized Florida for not imposing lockdowns. I think you'd have to acknowledge, said DeSantis, we got the short end of the stick compared to these other states. So he's happy to take the money. He's saying Florida is being treated unfairly. But again, unless he takes credit for the money, which I don't see any evidence of him doing, I don't think it's a terrible thing. All right, let's move on to number four, Joe Biden. You notice that Joe Biden isn't in the news very much. And by the way, I mentioned this yesterday, you know, Joe Manchin kind of making clear that he's in no hurry to pass this Build Back Better bill. And uh, former AP reporter Jonathan Lemire said today on MSNBC that the only person who thinks this bill is going to pass by Christmas is Chuck Schumer. So I guess this is starting to be a conventional wisdom that it's kind of dead. Uh, not dead forever, but dead for this year, which means that it would have to be taken up uh, next year, which, of course, it gets more complicated. And I wonder if there's ever going to be a vote on this thing. All right. Brett Stevens, uh, conservative New York Times columnist, says Biden should announce he's not running again. Here's some of his column. Um, Biden seems uneven, often cogent, but sometimes alarmingly incoherent. What's the reason? I have no idea. Do his appearances, including the good ones, inspire strong confidence that the president can go the distance in his current term to say nothing of the next? No. This is not healthy, says Stevens, not for the president, not for the office he holds, not for the Democratic Party, not for the country. He should announce sooner rather than later that he will not run for a second term. Now, everybody, you know, in the media, everybody in politics says, if he does that, he's an immediate lame duck. He would have no power whatsoever. I happen to believe that's true. Even Brett Stevens says it's true. But he says, look, right now, he's worse than a lame duck because potential Democratic successors are prevented from making calls, finding their lanes, and appealing for attention. In other words, he's frozen the field because nobody in the Democratic Party can go out and campaign. And he mentions uh, some contenders like Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, the new infrastructure czar, former New Orleans Mayor Mitchell Andrew. What would it mean for the rest of the Biden presidency? It would instantly allow him to be statesmanlike. Well, I just think Brett's wrong. Yeah, he could be as statesmanlike as he wants, but he won't be able to pass anything because he won't have the implicit power that comes with the idea that he could be president for a long time. I just think it's off. But fascinating to me, yesterday there was a news story in the Times 
it basically went through like all the people who might run. It said, okay, you can't say this publicly because, you know, the official line is Biden's running again. Personally, I doubt he'd run again at 82, but I don't know. And I don't think that he's made a decision. So here are the contenders according to the New York Times. Uh, Buttigieg, yes. Kamala Harris, yes. Elizabeth Warren, interesting. Amy Klobuchar, well, she'd have to deal with the fact that she had cancer, but I guess she seems to be cancer-free. Mitch Landrieu, I guess by joining the White House um, and now is overseeing the infrastructure law, suddenly a contender. Look, he's from the South, but it's not like the Democrats have much strength in the South. Um, Gretchen Whitmer, if she wins re-election. Uh, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, who barely squeaked by in winning re-election, could also run. I don't see that. Uh, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. So that is the list as, you know, Democratic strategists and sources. And, and, and the reporters uh, called these people up and then Amy Klobuchar says, well, you know, I expect Biden to run for re-election. That's all I got to say. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, I'm sticking to my story because they all know it would create a huge intra-party battle if they were so much hint that they're looking at 2024. Now, I want to close with number five. It's a sports story, but it's really much more than that. It's a Washington story, but it's really much more than that. It has to do with the Washington football team, properly known as the Redskins. And this came up because the NFL is doing this big investigation, and that investigation led to the leaking of those emails by the uh, Raiders coach, John Gruden, who ultimately had to resign. But what about the owner of the Washington football team, Dan Snyder, who's been controversial for years. He's also had a losing club for years, or at least a club that's not, hasn't been a championship contender. So here's an investigation by the Washington Post. Back in July 2020, a few days after prominent D.C. lawyer Beth Wilkinson began investigating allegations of widespread sexual harassment at the Washington football team, and she had been tapped to do that, I guess, by the league, she learned of a decade-old allegation of sexual misconduct against Daniel Snyder. Snyder for years had privately denied the women's claims, but the existence of an allegation against him, which had been kept secret, by a confidential $1.6 million settlement had the potential to rock the franchise. And there was already lots of scandalous stuff that was coming out about the then Redskins. Um, Wilkinson tried to interview this former team employee who had made the accusation, according to sources. Snyder and his team stepped in. Despite his public pledge to cooperate with all aspects of the investigation, Dan Snyder's attorneys attempted to prevent Beth Wilkinson from speaking to Snyder's accuser, according to a letter from the woman's attorney to Snyder's lawyers that was filed in federal court. The Washington Post hasn't reviewed the letter. It's under seal. But it, people who are familiar with it have described its contents. The woman's lawyer, uh, legendary D.C. lawyer, Brendan Sullivan, accused Snyder's attorneys of offering his client more money beyond the $1.6 million settlement if she agreed not to speak to anyone about her allegations. Man, I mean, this is an attempt to keep it quiet, an attempt to cover up. Here's more money. Just keep your mouth shut. In court filings, Wilkinson later described phone calls to uh, Brendan Sullivan from Snyder's lawyers, from Dan Snyder's lawyers, as an attempt to silence the accuser who made her accusations back in 2009. Um, Snyder's attorneys in their own sealed letter denied trying to block the interview, uh, denied offering the woman more money. So some of this is disputed. 
The alleged effort to block the interview is one of several instances in which lawyers and private investigators working on Snyder's behalf took steps that potential witnesses for Wilkinson viewed as an attempt to interfere with the NFL investigation, according to a review of hundreds of pages of court records and interviews with more than 30 people. So this goes on and on and on about this investigation. And it really is troubling um, that it has reached this point. But when you have the NFL investigating, officially investigating, one of the, you know, marquee franchises, which a lot of sexual harassment stuff has come out in other stories by the Washington Post and elsewhere. Cheerleaders who said that they were, you know, paraded in front of male VIPs at the insistence of the team, some accusations of sexual harassment there. But here's Dan Snyder. He still owns the team. And he certainly has been a subject of this investigation. And he did what he could through his lawyers, through private eyes, through offering a whole lot more money than he had already paid this woman in a settlement to bar her from going public, to block her from going public, I guess you would say, and to prevent the woman, the female attorney, Wilkinson, hired by the league to investigate or brought in by the team to investigate, I'm not 100% sure, to even stop her from interviewing a guy who, a woman who was accusing Dan Snyder of personal misconduct. Now, I don't know whether it's true or not. There was a settlement. I don't have access to the documents. Snyder obviously is denying it. But how does the league put up with this? Why isn't some of this being made public? How does the National Football League put up with this? In any other industry, would this be acceptable? Um, I don't know. It's pretty troubling stuff. And the, the, the Washington Post deserves a lot of credit. Because remember, for a newspaper, hometown newspaper, to take on the local team, which people love, and they go to the games, they watch the games on TV, and they root. You know, Washington is a place that where it's kind of a city of transients. And certainly there are lots of people who grew up here. But, you know, so many people come to Washington for reasons of politics, to work for Congress, to clerk for the Supreme Court, um, to... Um, be a journalist, to be a lawyer, um, that the, the Redskins, and I'll call them Redskins, I know the name was removed because it was offensive, but I don't know what else to call them. The Washington football team is one of the sort of few unifying things that everybody used to be able to root for, and now not so much. And that's why this is a real shame. Always appreciate your listening. Uh, a lot of important stuff to get in today. Uh, one of the places you can get this podcast is on your Amazon device, you know, the one that begins with A. And a lot of other places as well. We'll see you all tomorrow with more Busby. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.